For many, the thought of prison is enough to keep them on the straight and narrow. But for others, prison is merely a consequence of their chosen lifestyle. And for a select few, prison is nothing more than a challenge, a puzzle begging to be solved. Today, we'll look at some of the more creative escapes in this episode of the Infographic Show, The Greatest Prison Escapes in History. We're starting off with a classic, fictionalized by Hollywood into the film The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen, though the real story is fraught with far more drama than what could fit on the silver screen. In World War II, the prisoner of war camp known as Stalag Luft III was thought to be the most secure POW camp in Europe. Hundreds of miles southeast of Berlin, it was located deep in enemy territory and featured a host of security features meant to make it difficult to escape from. Along with barbed wire fences, the Germans had sunk microphones nine feet deep into the soil all along the perimeter in order to detect the sound of digging. The prisoners' huts were all built on stilts, raised up above the ground so any tunnel would be immediately visible. Lastly, the sandy soil made it nearly impossible to dig through, threatening collapse at any moment. Yet none of these things stopped a band of British, Canadian, Australian, French, and American airmen from attempting an escape anyways. The plan was to build three tunnels codenamed Tom, Dick, and Harry. Using only metal silverware and milk tin cans, the prisoners painstakingly chipped away at the building support columns of three different huts in order to avoid being seen working underneath them. They accessed their below-floor workspace via a secret trapdoor over which they kept a heating stove permanently lit in order to discourage any Nazi guards from getting too close. In order to solve the microphone problem, the escapees dug their tunnels a whopping 30 feet deep, excavating an astonishing 100 tons of sand all by hand. To avoid raising suspicion, the excavated sand was concealed in stuffed socks which they would sprinkle discreetly on garden soil being raked by other prisoners. To shore up their tunnel walls, the prisoners stripped 4,000 wooden bedboards and then lined each tunnel with 1,700 blankets to muffle the sounds of digging. They converted discarded milk tins into lamps with wicks made from pajama cords and burned in mutton fat the prisoners skimmed off the greasy soup they were served. Stealing a few hundred feet of electrical wire, the prisoners even managed to fashion their own work lights, which they plugged directly into the camp's electrical supply. And if that's not enough ingenuity, the prisoners also created an air pump using hockey sticks and other discarded bits of trash, and even built an underground trolley system to transport the excavated sand. On March 24, 1944, the prisoners finally made their escape. Forced to move one by one through the cramped tunnels, barely a dozen managed to make it out per hour, and at one point, a one-hour blackout during an air raid further slowed the escape attempt. At around 5 a.m., however, disaster struck, with a Nazi guard on patrol nearly falling into the exit shaft of one of the three tunnels and discovering the plot. A massive manhunt was mobilized, and eventually the Germans recovered 73 of the 76 escapees. Three, however, would make it to safety. Two Norwegians, who stowed away on a freighter to Sweden, and a Dutchman, who made his way to Gibraltar by rail and foot. A furious Hitler ordered the execution of 50 of the escapees, violating the Geneva Convention. Years after after the war, a military tribunal found 18 Nazi soldiers guilty of war crimes for shooting the recaptured POWs and 13 of them were executed. As one of the largest manhunts in American history, the prison escape of the Texas 7 in December of 2000 made headlines around the world. On December 13, 2000, the seven inmates convinced a maintenance supervisor to let them skip lunch so they could wax the floors of the maintenance room. Distracting the supervisor, one of the inmates knocked him unconscious with a blow to the back of the head, then undressed him, tied him up, 
and locked him in an electrical room. During this time, three other inmates, four prison guards, and nine supervisors wandered into the room and incredibly, all were subdued by the inmates. That's when the Texas 7 put their plan into action. By impersonating various supervisors over the telephone, the inmates got out of 12 headcounts and then making their way to the gatehouse, incredibly conned their way inside by pretending to be monitor installers. Once inside the gatehouse, the prisoners subdued the lone guard and got his firearm along with a few other weapons from a weapons cache. Then the prisoners opened the back gate and drove their way out in a stolen pickup truck, launching a multi-state manhunt that would be one of the largest in American history. Eventually found, thanks in part to the television program America's Most Wanted, the prisoners even demanded a TV appearance before they would agree to surrender. In the end, no such appearance would be granted, and all of the seven were brought back into custody. There's never been a more iconic prison in history than Alcatraz, and naturally it is the setting for our greatest prison escape story. A lifelong criminal, Frank Morris was serving a 10-year stint for bank robbery when he broke out of the Louisiana State State Penitentiary, only to be recaptured a year later and sent to Alcatraz. Ranked in the top 2% of the population in intelligence and with an IQ of 133, Morris paid no heed to Alcatraz's reputation as an inescapable prison and quickly went to work developing an escape plan. Partnering with brothers John and Clarence Anglin and car thief Alan West, the four prisoners discovered an unguarded utility corridor that ran just behind their cells, which housed a ventilation shaft to the roof. Utilizing scavenged saw blades, spoons stolen from the commissary, and even a home-built drill made from the motor of a broken vacuum cleaner, the four gradually widened the ventilation duct opening in each of their cells. The holes were concealed using cardboard and paint, and Morris's accordion provided cover for the sound of their work. Once inside the utility corridor, the four climbed to the roof of their cell block and set up a small workshop there. Using stolen and donated materials, the four made makeshift life preservers using 50 raincoats from a design they had seen in an issue of Popular Mechanics. They also used the raincoats to create a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft and used a small accordion-like concertina they stole from another inmate as a bellows to inflate the raft. Their paddles were made from scrap wood and stolen screws. On the night of June 11th, 1962, the men began their escape. Of the four though, Alan West was unable to leave his cell, having used cement to shore up the crumbling concrete around the vent opening in his cell, which threatened to give him away. Once dried, the cement narrowed the escape hole and fixed the steel grill in place, and by the time he had rewidened his hole and removed the grill, the others had already left without him. The other three inmates climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof, then hauled their homemade life preservers and raft 50 feet down a kitchen vent pipe to the ground and then scaled two 12-foot barbed wire fences. Somewhere along the northeast shoreline of Alcatraz, where the prison's network of searchlights and gun towers had a blind spot, the men inflated their raft and then rode into the dense fog, trying to reach Angel Island two miles to the north. In the ensuing manhunt, police would recover one of the paddles and bits of raft and life preservers, but no sign of the men. With their stated plan having been to steal clothing in a car, and no vehicle or clothing thefts reported in the area after the escape, the police finally concluded that in all likelihood, the men drowned in the strong currents and frigid waters of San Francisco Bay. Some 70,000 convicts were sent here, but very few made it out alive. With conditions harsh enough to shatter the spirits of even the most resilient criminals, this was truly a land of torment, the final destination for many unfortunate souls. Welcome to Devil's Island, the world's most notorious prison to ever be forgotten. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? 
With a treacherous landscape and an ominous past, you'd better watch your step because danger lurks in every direction. The name Devil's Island was actually coined by the prisoners themselves, which should give you some clue about the conditions that they lived in. Officially, it was called Banya de Cayenne, otherwise known as the Penal Colony of Cayenne. Located about 9 to 10 miles off the Atlantic coast from Kourou, a small town in French Guinea on the northeastern coast of South America, resides three small rocky islands. These are known as the Salvation Islands, also known as the Ile de Salut in French. In this case, the term salvation would seem like an oxymoron. The smallest of the three islands is Devil's Island, a narrow strip of land about 3,900 feet long and roughly 1,320 feet wide. Don't let the palm trees fool you, this was no island paradise. Today an overgrown jungle is slowly hiding the remnants of what was once a penal or exile colony, a virtual hell here on Earth. Established by the Emperor Napoleon III in 1852, the island was originally used as a leper colony to quarantine people with leprosy before later being used to incarcerate political prisoners and criminals. Throughout a long stretch of time consisting of around 100 years, many were convicted here, including murderers, rapists, and those deemed as an overall threat to society. Some men, however, were sent here despite being innocent of the charges that were staged against them. It didn't matter what category of criminal you were listed under. If you were unlucky enough to be sent here, you endured the same fate as everyone else. Items on the agenda included squeezing into tight living spaces, getting covered in dirt, and being abused by other inmates. Whether you were a petty thief or a savage murderer, you could expect to be stripped of your identity and thrown into the mix. You were forced to cohabit the same environment and mingle with those more dangerous than you. Not surprisingly, fights were a regular occurrence amongst the prisoners, many of which ended in murders that later went unpunished. No one really cared whether people lived or died. Isolated on a treacherous island with no way out, why would anyone bother punishing the prisoners? It only required paperwork, a guide was quoted saying to Alice Obscura during a visit to the island. It was easier, he explained, to let nature take its course and let them die of harsh labor, tropical disease, or a failed attempt to escape. When the prisoners were punished on rare occasions, they were commonly put in isolation for months at a time. Imagine going a long time in a dark room with no one to talk to. Some convicts were even placed in deep 12 by 12 foot holes with bars on top instead of a roof so that they'd be subject to all kinds of weather conditions without a shelter to protect them. One prisoner was reportedly tied to a tree deep in the jungle as punishment for attempting to attack a guard. He was left to endure the elements, vulnerable to nature's wrath. The next day, he was discovered dead. Out of 70,000-something men, three-quarters of them died from disease, hunger, and mistreatment. Many also fell prey to insects such as ants as well as bats and rats picking at their rotting bodies. Many convicts even died on the way to the island since even the trip in and of itself was extremely dangerous. Many inmates were forced to share tiny cramped cells with one another in filthy conditions. To put this in perspective, these cells were about the same size as the common household bathroom. As an exercise, if you were trying to squeeze your entire family into one, maybe you'd have a better idea of what it might have been like. Say goodbye to your privacy. We wouldn't recommend trying this if you're claustrophobic though. After 1885, the population of Devil's Island greatly increased as the French government started sending more prisoners, including an influx of more convicts charged with smaller offenses, not just hardened criminals. The conditions became ever more crowded as a result. Prisoners were routinely shackled at night, their legs tied to an iron rod. With the natural desire to shift and adjust your sleeping position throughout the night, it's easy to imagine that this would have been torture. During the day, prisoners were forced to move around in chains, with starvation being common. Many resembled walking skeletons. 
A lot of prisoners anticipated death and probably welcomed it when it finally came. Though there is a graveyard located on the island to this day, most of the prisoners were not buried there. Due to its hazardous rocks and powerful ocean currents surrounding the island, safe access was only possible using a cable car, which crossed the 60-foot-wide channel between Devil's Island and the main island, Ile Royale. Though on every prisoner's mind, escape was very difficult to achieve. Some might even say impossible. The rough landscape was its own challenge with sharp rocks and piranha-infested rivers, and sharks also posed a serious threat. These killer monsters circled the island constantly, eagerly waiting to feast on the prisoners. They were even said to respond to the ring of a bell like trained dogs whenever it was time to dispose of the corpses. The bodies of the dead convicts were on the menu, loaded into wheelbarrows and dumped into the ocean. The piranhas were basically handed a free meal on a silver platter. Many who tried to escape also perished in the water. One well-known prisoner to be brought to Devil's Island was a man named Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Born in 1859, this French army officer was the son of a wealthy Jewish family. He was accused of selling military secrets to the Germans in 1894 and was put on trial for treason. He was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment and he arrived at Devil's Island on April 13, 1895. His case, however, initiated a 12-year controversy known as the Dreyfus Affair, which made a lasting impact on the political and social history of the French Third Republic. During this time, the French press was highly anti-Semitic, and the evidence that had been used against him was largely fabricated. Dreyfus reportedly cried out, giving a passionate plea. He said, I swear that I'm innocent. I remain worthy of serving the army. Long live France. Long live the army. But it made no difference. Despite having pled his innocence, public opinion welcomed the verdict and wanted him to be sentenced. Dreyfus was used as symbolism for anti-Semitic propaganda, spreading popular opinion about the supposed disloyalty of French Jews. Not everyone was convinced, however, and doubt over Dreyfus's guilt spread like wildfire. The case sparked widespread public attention and split France apart into two opposing groups, those who were for his guilty sentence and those who were opposed to it. Dreyfus was eventually pardoned and released once it was realized that he was unjustly condemned, but not before spending over four long, brutal years on Devil's Island. Considering that more than 40% of prisoners did not survive their first year on the island, and few lived to see their release date, Dreyfus was very lucky. He was released on June 5, 1899. He had written a journal detailing his captivity in more than 1,000 letters. So how about those who managed to escape from Devil's Island prison? There are very few who succeeded, one allegedly being Clement Duval in 1901. He was an anarchist who fled to New York City and wrote a book about his imprisonment called Revolte. Another escapee was a man named René Belbenois, who escaped by helping a film company. He earned $100 which he used to bring a Chinese merchant boat to pick him up. When the boat arrived, he hid in it and sailed away. He spent months recovering with a native tribe off the mainland, making his way on foot through South America. He walked through Central America up to Mexico before finally entering the United States. Now that's quite a hike. Belbenois published two books called Hell on Trial and Dry Guillotine, 15 Years Among the Living Dead, which spread awareness about what went on in the penal colony. There must have been something about the island that drove successful escapees into authorship. Why else would they want to recount their experiences by writing books about it? René Belbenois made a mistake by traveling back to his home country of France to argue his case. Upon his arrival, he was immediately captured and returned to the colony to be imprisoned once again. He was eventually released though and went on to live a free life in California where he worked as a technical advisor for Warner Brothers during the making of the 1944 film Passage to Marseille. 
He also founded Renee's Ranch Store in the Lucerne Valley and later obtained legal US citizenship in 1956. Perhaps the most popular and infamous escape from Devil's Island was done by Henri Charrier and Sylvain. Born in 1906, Henri Charrier was framed for murder and transported to the prison in 1930 from France. He was otherwise known as Papillon, the French word for butterfly. He earned his name due to the butterfly tattoo on his chest. During his escape, he leapt from a cliff on the island into the sea with his companion, Sylvain, using two sacks filled with coconuts as life buoys. It took the pair three days to drift to the mainland and they somehow managed to avoid being eaten by sharks. Sylvain died shortly after reaching the shore, supposedly due to getting caught in quicksand. It must have been really aggravating for Sylvain to make it all the way across shark-infested waters for three days just to die that way. Henri, on the other hand, was caught and thrown into another prison, the Banya at El Dorado, but was soon released to live a free life in Venezuela from there. After his ordeal was over, Henri wrote a book, Papillon, which detailed his experiences. French authorities attempted to discredit him, denying his claim that he had escaped from Devil's Island. They even went so far as to say Henri was never sentenced there to begin with. Critics go on to say that Henri should have admitted that this book was based on fiction. We'd be curious to know whether you believe Papillon is based on fabricated accounts of events or if French authorities were just trying to cover it up. It seems pretty suspicious to say the least, especially since many aspects of the story bear more than a few similarities to a memoir by another Devil's Island prisoner called Dry Guillotine, which had been written 30 years before Papillon. Nevertheless, Henri's Papillon name continued to live on in infamy upon his death in 1973. To this day, the name Papillon can be found carved in the floor of cell 47 on Devil's Island. There were even movie adaptations made from the story. If you're looking for something to watch tonight, there are two different versions of the film to choose from. We went ahead and did the research for you to make your life a little easier. The ratings on Rotten Tomatoes give an 83% for the 1973 version of the movie Papillon, starring Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. A poorer score of 52% was given for the recent 2017 version of the film. You're welcome. Though the transportation of prisoners to the French penal colony was abolished in 1938, the last of the prisoners continued to remain on Devil's Island for much longer than that. The closure of the facility was delayed upon the outbreak of World War II. Starting in 1946, French penal colonies everywhere were gradually being terminated one by one. Devil's Island, however, was the last to shut its doors in 1953. For the most part, it was largely forgotten by the rest of the world. Today, however, Devil's Island is a popular tourist destination because of its dark past and the fame it acquired from the books and film adaptations of Papillon's story. There's a sort of twisted irony in the fact that so many prisoners could not flee the island in the past, but now you can't get on the island even if you wanted to. This is because it's closed to the public. Though you cannot actually step foot on the island itself, however, you can view it offshore from a charter boat. Many also take helicopters over it just to sneak an aerial peek at the ruins. The other two islands in the group, the three Salvation Islands, are open for access to the public and contain some of the original buildings restored as museums. So what's the appeal of visiting exactly? This may be in large part due to the movies, or perhaps some people have a ghoulish sense of curiosity for the atrocities that went on there. Who knows? Like with any story involving a place with a dark past, there are some who claim Devil's Island is haunted. Visitors have said they've seen ghosts of prisoners everywhere in the crumbling ruins. If we could ask, our question for the ghosts would be, if you died wanting to escape the island in life, why spend all your time there after death? Perhaps it's a form of purgatory for those lost spirits who still can't find their way to freedom. 
Some of you might have heard about a little island that lies just one and a quarter miles off San Francisco. The only reason you've likely heard the name is because arguably the United States' most infamous prison was located there. The prison closed down, but tales keep being told. That prison had been home to some of America's most notorious criminals, and not for a second did the authorities think any of them could ever escape. That's because even if a prisoner did make it to the edge of the island, it was thought there was no way anyone could make it to land through the frigid and choppy water. The FBI believes that the only people that did ever get to the water died there. Full stop. Game over. It was impossible. But that might not be the case. Before we tell you about the recent revelations that might have proved the FBI were wrong all along, and indeed some men made it through the water and onto land, we think we should tell you about the escape itself. It's worthy of a movie, and that's why myriad movies have been made partly based on this brazen escape. The year is 1962. There have been 12 escape attempts before this year, and all of them failed. Not only did prisoners with escape in mind have to break out of their cells, but they had to scale high walls and get past armed guards, and then there was the dangerous waters of the San Francisco Bay. And as we said, the last hurdle was thought to be insurmountable. But four men this year weren't the type of guys to shy away from a challenge. Their names were Clarence Anglin, John Anglin, Alan West, and Frank Morris. And on June 11th, they made perhaps the most daring prison escape attempt ever. You'd be right in thinking that two of these men were related. They were actually brothers. And like the other two men, they were career criminals. We won't go into their backgrounds much, but it's important we give you a few details as this might give you a clue as to how these men might have survived. For instance, the two Anglin brothers were said to be inseparable as kids, and from a young age, as early as 14, they were both toughing it out as laborers. After that, the duo decided that robbing banks was easier and less strain on the back, and the criminal career started. But the important thing we should mention is that both these guys, when just little kids, were said to enjoy swimming in Lake Michigan during the winter. It's said they impressed people around them by their incredible swimming ability, but also the fact that they could swim when there was still ice in the water. Another thing we should mention was the fact that Frank Morris was said to have a very high IQ. We aren't saying he was a genius, but an IQ of 133 isn't bad at all. So we have strength and we have brains, and it just so happened in 1961, these guys were placed in cells adjacent to each other. Now we see the plot thicken. It was Morris who was the brains of the operation, and he enlisted the two brothers who no doubt told him that surviving in the water would be a cinch. They did not wing their escape, however, and over six months devised and orchestrated their plan. What they knew they needed to do was widen the ventilation ducts in their respective cells. These ducts were too small for them to crawl into, and so with sharpened spoons and stolen saw blades, as well as a drill they had fashioned from a vacuum cleaner, they got to work. That was a noisy business, making the whole bigger, but the guards didn't hear a thing, as Morris spent most of the night playing his accordion. The guards weren't suspicious because they'd heard this sound before. The thing was, as the holes widened, it looked like a mess in the wall. So what the guys did was paint a piece of cardboard the exact same color as the wall and stick it over the hole in the daytime when they weren't working. You see, what these men knew is that when they got through the hole, they would hit a utility tunnel, a place far away from any guards. After a while, they could easily get into this tunnel, but that didn't mean they could just escape. Even though two of them were great swimmers, they knew swimming that distance at night would be hard or impossible, so they devised to make a raft. This took a few months, and the raft was made out of at least 50 raincoats that the men had stolen or other prisoners had given them. They also made paddles out of wood and bolts, and had life jackets. Those life jackets were also 
also made out of raincoats, with the men using a process called vulcanization, a process to heat rubber to make the seams stick so that they could be blown up. It was the same for the raft. The men could make sure no air got out, and they could in time inflate it. But what we like the most is what the guys did to evade suspicion when they were in the tunnel working on the raft. They of course couldn't just go missing from their cells, so they made dummies. We've seen pictures of the heads, and they are unbelievably lifelike considering what they had to work with. The heads were made from cement, skin-colored paint, and the best bit, human hair they'd collected from the prison barbers. It makes you wonder just how creative and industrious these men could have been had they not chosen a life of crime. It took about six months to get the raft finished. Now we have the problem of actually getting to the water. This got off to a bad start for West because he'd used a kind of cement to keep his grill in place. What he hadn't reckoned on was the strength of this cement and he couldn't even get his grill off on June 11th. He was left behind and his confession is why we know so much about the escape. The other three men got into the tunnel, collected the raft and the rest of what they needed and then they made their way to the roof. We're told from there they scaled down a kitchen vent pipe which was around 50 feet high. They then climbed two fences which were covered with barbed wire and were 12 feet high. It seems that they just used their strength and 12 feet isn't too hard to climb. Now they were in a blind spot from the guards and this is where they could inflate the raft. That's a lot of blowing for a pair of human lungs but the guys had the concertina from Morse's accordion. That's the thing you push and pull that acts a bit like a human lung. The guards only realized the next day that the men were missing and so the escapees had plenty of time to make it to land. The question is, did they make it? An investigation led to a paddle being found but also bits of raincoat being discovered on the nearby Angel Island beach. Did this mean they got there or just mean it had floated there? The FBI said that night the currents were really strong and after many years of trying to find the men, they closed the investigation in 1979. The men had died. That was it. The end. But over the years, siblings of the two brothers would come forward and say they'd been contacted by their brothers. Countless other people would lead police on a wild goose chase, saying they were the escapees or they'd been contacted by the men. It's said at one point the Anglin brothers might have attended a funeral of one of their older brothers and there have even been sightings in Brazil. It's been called one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in American crime and to this day US Marshals say they still get leads as to where these guys are. But the fact is, there hasn't really been any substantial proof that the guys made it. Well, not until a recent bombshell hit the media. That's because in January 2013 the FBI received a letter, a letter they didn't tell the media about for a while. They decided to repress it, but they reopened the case. This is how the letter started. My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. The problem was that any DNA analysis was inconclusive, but still, something just rang true about the letter. The writer states that the brains of the group Morris died back in 2008. The writer was obviously one of the surviving brothers. This is what he told the police. If you announce on TV that I'll be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke. If the brothers did survive, now they would be in their late 80s. Morris would be 91, but he might have died if that letter is real. One thing to note though is that one FBI investigator who'd been with the agency for over 20 years told the media when the letter was released that just saying the raft failed and it was impossible to swim wasn't exactly conclusive. We know these men could swim well and these days we know many athletes can swim through that water and spend a long time in it. It's hardly an inhuman task to swim the San Francisco Bay. Then there's the fact that investigators say well we would have found them, they'd have committed other offenses. 
That's hardly convincing too. The writer of the letter added that he had lived around the USA after the escape, and if the letter is real, it seems he did become a law-abiding citizen. That or he just never got caught committing a crime. There's other stuff too, such as what the nephew of the brother said many years later. My grandmother received roses for several years after the escape, he said to the media. That nephew added that the authorities should allow the writer of the letter to come in and let him be treated, but it seems the authorities had no interest in doing that. Well, the statement was released, so it seems there is some interest. The US Marshal Service has not completely given up. It has publicly stated it will continue to pursue the escapees until they are either arrested, positively determined to be deceased, or reach the age of 99. The year is 2000 and the date is December 13th. Seven men at a maximum security prison in Texas are just about to perform an audacious if not brazen prison escape. They are dangerous men and between them are sentenced to hundreds of years. They are not prepared to do their time. In the words of the ringleader of the gang, George Rivas, I had no parole, I had no good time, I had no incentive to behave. The minimum amount of time I had was 270 years and I obviously couldn't do that. He handpicked his team and what would follow is an escape and subsequent bloody crime spree. This is the story of the Texas 7. Before we describe how these men managed to get out of maximum security prison and tell you about the horrors of what happened after they got out, let's first introduce the team. We have the ringleader, George Rivas, and you know he was never going to get out of prison. He was serving 18 consecutive 15 to life sentences for robbery. That might seem like a lot of time for the crime, but he was convicted of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, and burglary. It's said he picked his team knowing he was more intelligent than them, but also because he knew they were dangerous men. Then we have Joseph Garcia, who was serving life for killing a man in a drunken altercation. Randy Halperin was doing time for badly beating a baby. He got 30 years. Larry Harper was serving 50 years for rape and acts of voyeurism. Patrick Murphy had 50 years to serve for aggravated assault, a particularly nasty crime against a woman. Donald Newbery was in for aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon. And Michael Rodriguez was serving 99 years to life for hiring a man to kill his wife. These are the Texas Seven. Rivas picked the team and at some point the men began meeting at the John B. Connolly unit at the prison. Getting out of such a place was not going to be easy, and some believe the men hatched their plan over perhaps an entire year. On the day of the escape, just before lunch, the guards at the maintenance area sent the prisoners off for their chow. The guards then went for their lunch. Only Rivas, Garcia, Halperin, Harper, and Newbury were left in the maintenance area because they had managed to convince the maintenance supervisor that they had to wax the floors there. They told him that they would take lunch in this area. The supervisor said, fair enough, but he'd have to stay behind with them. Murphy, working in another area, asked to join the crew, and he was given the green light. As for the last of the group, Rodriguez, he managed to join the crew after lying to the guards that he had been told he had to pick up trash there. He wasn't initially part of the escape plan, but he became so. The men were all joined together just as they had planned. Then they had told the supervisor to follow them to a warehouse where they needed something. There, they got him down on the ground, stole his clothes, and left him tied up in a small electrical room. The crew found more clothes, but more importantly, they got the keys to the room where the tools were stored. In that room, they managed to get their hands on two hacksaws, a bolt cutter, wire cutting pliers, and a utility knife. Over the next two hours, they would get more clothes and the things they needed after subduing two prison guards as well as other inmates. Some of those hostages would get out of their restraints, but the gang would make sure they couldn't get out of the room that they'd been tied up in. With the clothes they'd stolen, the gang could now pretend to be supervisors, and that they did. 
they could also make sure the head count was right, although they were of course missing. Around this time, things could have gone wrong because one of the hostages in the room set the fire alarm off, but it was taken as a false alarm. The men in disguise then approached the gate where heavily armed guards were. They told the guards that they had a job to do and that was to install video cameras. The guards let them through the gate and importantly did not ask for any ID. They came upon another guard at a gatehouse and this one did ask for ID, but then the gang had been clever because they had left one guy in the maintenance department. That guy actually called the gatehouse to ask him if the men had turned up to install the video cameras. After this, the men subdued this guard and tied him up. Meanwhile, Halpern gained access to one of the towers, where an armed guard was stationed. Halpern later said in interviews that this guard had a lot of weapons on him, so he quickly lunged to grab one of his guns and pointed it at him. He then ordered the guard to open the vehicle gate. After that, he gained entrance to the armory, where he would take a lot of weapons from there. The stash of weapons included a 12-gauge Remington pump-action shotgun and 14 rounds of ammunition, 14 357 Magnum Smith & Wesson revolvers with a total of 210 rounds, and a 223 caliber AR-15 assault rifle with 15 rounds. Now, these guys were certainly very dangerous. The entire gang left the prison with all these weapons in a stolen truck. After they were well out of sight of the prison, one of the tied-up guards got loose and reported the escape. So now we have seven criminals with histories of violence let loose in Texas and, worse, they're armed to the teeth. The authorities put word out that very dangerous criminals were driving around and they were heavily armed. The manhunt was on, but nothing was going to be easy for the authorities. At the same time, the guards found three letters left by the gang, with some of those letters decrying the harsh conditions inside. One of the letters said, you haven't heard the last of us yet. The authorities would take this as a threat, although the writer of that letter would later say that this was not the case at all. The men now have weapons, but they don't have much money. They do what they know best, and that's steal cash. At a Radio Shack store, they first take a look around, but then go back just before closing time. There are still some customers in there and four employees in total, all of whom are subdued. What's strange is the hostages said the gang were very friendly. Later in interviews, this gang said throughout the entire ordeal they tried their best not to hurt anyone, but as you'll see, that certainly did not happen. We should also state that during the hostage taking in the prison, people were held at knife point and also hit over the head or punched in the face. They stole thousands of dollars from the store, as well as electrical equipment, which included walkie-talkies and police scanners. The team then headed to Dallas, knowing full well that the police would think they were headed to the Mexican border. The group now had money, but they wanted more. On Christmas Eve, they decided to rob an Oshman Sporting Goods in Irving, Dallas County. They got to the store, bound and gagged the staff, and it's said stole thousands of dollars as well as more than 40 different guns and lots of ammunition. But while this was going on, an employee was outside the store and he noticed something strange. He called the cops and 29-year-old police officer Aubrey Wright Hawkins turned up. Almost immediately, he came under fire. The officer was shot at different angles by perhaps three of the crew. Because they were firing from different sides of the car, at least one of the crew was hit. The officer was shot 11 times, with many of the bullets entering his head. He was then run over three times and left for dead. He actually died later in the hospital. The officer was married and had a son, and he was expected to celebrate Christmas with his family the next day. Later in an interview, his mother would say that his son said all he wanted for Christmas was his father back. The gang then fled in their motorhome, which was now packed with cash and guns. They'd even made a gun rack for their many weapons. They later parked this at a Christian community and posed as missionaries, saying they were doing the work of God. This was all a lie, except one of the men, Larry Harper, 
did attend Bible class and seemed to get into it. In interviews, the other people living on this kind of commune said the men seemed pretty normal, and Larry was welcome to the classes. But as time went by, the men couldn't hide. It was Rivas that was first spotted because someone noticed his face and the fact that he had a twitch. The police were called, but at first thought it just couldn't be the gang because there was no way they would have been stupid enough to stick together. Police soon knew they had their men and believed there could be one huge gunfight, but that didn't happen. First, Garcia, Rodriguez, and Rivas were arrested while driving around in a jeep. After that, police went back to the park to get the other men, and there they found Halprin and Harper. The former gave himself up, but Harper put a gun to his head and killed himself. He left the Bible open next to him on a page about forgiveness. He also left a letter apologizing to his family and the Bible group he had deceived. The remaining two men, Newbury and Murphy, hid out through most of January and then told authorities that they'd hand themselves in if they could make a TV appearance. The authorities agreed and the two men went on TV and denounced the criminal justice system. They said the system is as corrupt as we are. Newbury told the camera, the way I see it is I had to make a statement. Our judicial system in the state of Texas has really gone to pits. We're receiving 99 years for a robbery for $68. Nobody injured. He said he'd been set up, that the evidence was flimsy at best, and he got 99 years. He added, I've done the crime. You've got to face the music, but there's got to be something within reason in the state of Texas. They're giving kids so much time that they'll never get to see light again. Their life is gone. Now all they are is a roach in a cage. These words wouldn't save him. The authorities and the public had seen how these men killed a young father on Christmas Eve. People were furious. The men were sentenced to death. In 2008, Rodriguez was the first to go, having said he didn't want to appeal further. 2012, the ringleader Rivas was the next to go. Before he was executed, he said this to the family of the slain police officer, I do apologize for everything that happened, not because I'm here, but for closure in your hearts. I'm ready to go. Newbury was executed in 2015 and Garcia was executed in 2018. Halpern and Murphy are still in prison, with Murphy being the only one of the two who has an execution date. He's scheduled to die by lethal injection in November, so by the time you watch this show that might already have happened. The case of Halpern has caused much controversy. He's been scheduled to be executed, but then his trial judge was accused of racial discrimination. Halpern is Jewish and the judge was said to have used racial slurs against him and also said Jews need to be shut down because they control all the money. The Washington Post wrote that after that, Halpern's attorneys demanded a new trial. It got worse for the judge, according to the Post, because other people called him a lifelong racist who had vented anger on many occasions against lots of minorities in the USA. The newspaper wrote that this judge had even set up a trust fund for his kids that they would get on the condition of them marrying a straight, white, Christian person, spurring a lot of the American public to ask how this man became a judge. With this in mind, asked Halpern's attorneys, how could any non-Christian, non-white person receive a fair trial? And that's where the story of the Texas 7 ends. Now check out how SEAL Team took down Osama bin Laden minute by minute, or click this other video instead.